Welcome, sisters. It's so great to be here with you today, and, and I'm still basking in the last few weeks of Sisters in Scriptures. Last week, to hear about eternal marriage, I was touched. And the week before that, to hear about Emma Smith, you know what I mean. Anyway, my prayer is that that spirit will continue today. So um, I begin with the thought that, please know, I feel the weight of the responsibility of teaching you about plural marriage today. I received a text from a friend this morning, and she said, I understand you're giving a lesson about plural marriage. And anyway, it was just a sweet little text. And, and it came to me, what is there about teaching something that we do not fully understand that actually invites the spirit. So, don't think that I haven't lost sleep over this subject. So I, with you, invite the spirit of the Holy Ghost to be here with us. Because you see, we are a group of women, Heavenly Father's daughters gathered today to talk about a pivotal time in this dispensation, when a pivotal commandment was given from God to Joseph Smith to practice plural marriage. Now, I need to know before we even start, what's in your heart? What is the first thought that comes to your mind when you consider plural marriage? Would you turn to the person next to you and share what just came into your mind? <laughs> honest, honest, honest. Okay, let's get those microphones ready. And uh, the first four people that stand up get to share either something you said or the person next to you said. The first four. One, Kathy. It's coming. Two, two more. You, you can stand up anytime you'd like. Two. My daughter said, ew. And I said, I admire those who embraced it and went ahead. Thank you, Kathy. Good. What else? At that time, women didn't have any status if they were widowed or alone. And life was very difficult to them. So this gave them an opportunity to be recognized and belong to a family and have value in the eyes of others. Thank you. Two more. Would you stand, please? And, and Fran, keep standing. When we had our Relief Society celebration, <clears throat> I was privileged to represent Bathsheba Smith. Um, she has since become quite a person in my life. I look up to her for her obedience. She wasn't called to be Relief Society president until she was 83. She served for 13 years and also served as temple matron at the same time. She was the first wife of her husband, <clears throat> and he had five younger, I'm sure intelligent, beautiful wives. 
she embraced it fully because she knew that if it were the Lord's will, which she believed it was, that she couldn't get to the celestial kingdom without accepting that. Oh, thank you, Fran. That's good history. One more. My husband and I just finished our mission at the Church History Library, and we did a collection. We were in collections, and we organized the big collections that came in. And there was a collection where the man had done research and had information about all the splinter groups that had left the church, splinter groups from the church. And there's, four, there's like 445, 65, 400, over 400. And as I went through those, there was like two, two main reasons people splinter off from the church. And the main one is polygamy. They want to live polygamy people who want to live polygamy. The other one was from the scripture in Doctrine and Covenants where it says, I will send one mighty and strong, and they think they're the mighty and strong one. Interesting. revelation for the church. Interesting. Interesting insight. Thank you. It has touched every one of our lives. In fact, let's just think about it. Raise your hand if polygamy touched your life through your progenitors. Look around. To me, that's a testimony of why. Where else could you hear someone say, she's my foster sister, my sister's sister, my sister-in-law, my cousin, and the wife of my aunt's husband. (laughs) And it's the same person. Or, My father used to say that two of his sisters and a cousin married three of his brothers, yet none was related to the other. That was plural marriage. Zina Huntington Young, when she was the General Relief Society president, said this, Today the hearts of all were tried, but looked to God and submitted. Now, when do you think that Sister Young said those words? You may think that she said them when polygamy was introduced. No, instead she said them on October 6th of 1890 when President Woodruff uh, declared the manifesto. It was as difficult to leave polygamy as it was to begin it. That's what she said. Today their hearts were tried, but they would look to God and submit. So just the other night, as Jack and I were kneeling for prayer, he, I'm sorry, he knew the worry that I was feeling for this lesson. And this is what he said. Bless Rosemary to shed light on a subject that has been painted with an ugly brush and help all to see the rewards of the sacrifice that was paid by so many. Well, at the end of our prayer, I quickly jumped up and went and wrote down what he said. And I believe that that came from God through Jack, because I believe that the Lord wants us today to see the rewards of the sacrifice that was paid by so many. Now, I was drawn to an article in the newspaper last week by Stuart C. Reed, a chaplain. It was entitled, Fixing Declines of Denominations in the United States. 
It was about the numerous religious denominations who are drastically losing membership. And he concludes with this statement. The cipher to invigorate a religion can only be discerned by those that consecrate themselves to a code of spiritual courage, no matter the consequences. For them, as devoted disciples, it is always the, king, the kingdom of God or nothing." End quote. We know that Joseph Smith said, a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary to lead unto life and salvation. So to begin with, can we look at the history of family throughout the ages? For this gives us a context to look at plural, plural marriage. And I brought a visual. Oh, I was so lucky to find this this morning in my mother's home. But it's something I've always loved to just look at. And I really should get it framed. I would hope you can see. This is a pioneer bonnet. It was probably worn in the mid-1800s. It belonged to my great-grandmother, Marinda Stevens, but if she wore it, we don't know, or if someone else wore it. But the reason I brought it today is this is the context. This is the view through which we need to view plural marriage, not the lens of 2017. So con con consider this beautiful bonnet, such as it is, as we talk today about plural marriage. Definition of family. Now, many of my thoughts today have come from a wonderful class taught by James and Judith McConkie. Uh, this past year, they have addressed the gospel topic essays and I was able to attend two of their three classes on plural marriage, but that was helpful. Also, um, Dr. Halverson, who teaches an institute class at the University of Utah, I was taught through his lesson, and then cute Becca Ellsworth, two full hours in my kitchen at the table. I've been taught this week. The function of family. If we were to say the function of family, we could say four things. It brings life into the world, nurture children and members of the family, it provides economic security, and its purpose is to help aged parents. Think of the cycle involved with family. Now let's go back and look at Old Testament times. Families lived in tribes or clans. It was definitely patriarchal. Families included concubines, extended family widows, orphans, and non-kin. Many were married shortly after puberty, and the aged were very respected and included and honored. Now let's look at the household at the time of Jesus' day. Families were a little smaller. Women had authority in the home, but had no power outside. The husband, wife, parents, children, slaves, and orphans and poor lived together. 
The son would leave the family, marry, then return and hook back in to the larger family. Parents had the power to arrange marriage. Let's jump to the 18th and 19th century America, those 17 and 1800s, with Joseph Smith. The Industrial Revolution was between 1750 and 1850. There was an Enlightenment period for religion. By the late 1700s, marriage was based on romance and personal choice. Families were smaller, more intimate, father controlled the property, and the family worked together to sustain life. The children were important because they contributed to the economy of the family. Then let's look at what they call the nuclear family of the 1900s or 20th century. The term family referred to mother, father, and children. Men provided and the women were mainly at home for the first half of that 20th century. The patriarch was in decline. The family was in a state of flux. Romantic love played a more significant role, and the home became a less productive unit. Children had time on their, on their hands. Today, today's modern family, how would we define families today? The definition of the word family is shifting. Families are smaller. Men and women are delaying marriage. Marriage is about mutual affection, not about building a social unit. Therefore, the need for marriage is less important. There is a belief that the role for women in the home constricts their development. And there is a belief that children need to have contact with more than two adults and siblings. So consequently, we are outsourcing our children. Why do we even discuss the evolution of family and marriage? Think about plural marriage. Think about when it was introduced. At a time when religion was vibrant, faith was strong, and individuals could choose their spouses for themselves, and all worked together to sustain life, and the purpose was to increase and strengthen the culture. We think of plural marriage as being very rare, but actually it isn't. In an ethnographic atlas, it says, of 1,231 societies noted, 588 had frequent polygamy, 435 had occasional polygamy, and 186 were monogamous, and four had polyandry. That means more than having more than one husband. So why then, in a monogamous nation, would a group of people begin to practice plural marriage? The answer is, their prophet, Joseph Smith, was commanded by the Lord to restore the practice of plural marriage to the earth. And this is qualified in Jacob's chapter 2, verses 27 and 30. So if you'll open your Book of Mormon to Jacob chapter 2, verses 27 and 30. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me, and hearken to the word of the Lord. 
For there shall not any man among you have save it be one wife and concubines, he, he shall have none. Now, listen to this part. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. You see, marriage between one man and one woman is God's standard, unless the Lord commands otherwise with the purpose to raise up seed unto the Lord. This same principle is taught in section 132, verse 63. So if you can flip over to Doctrine and Covenants 132, where Becca took us last week, the first half of section 132 talks about eternal marriage, and then the second half refers to plural marriage and adultery. We're looking at verse 63 in 132. In the middle of that verse, it reads, For they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandment, <clears throat> and to fulfill the promise which was given by my Father before the foundation of the world and for their exaltation in the eternal world, that they may bear the souls of men, and herein is the work of my Father continued, that he may be glorified." That was the purpose of plural marriage. Plural marriage was not a spontaneous decision of Joseph Smith. It was introduced through a commandment from the Lord with a purpose and as part of the Lord's work to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. You see, there was an, a, a vision of eternal perspective then when those women wore these very pioneer hats that maybe we've lost a portion of today. Let's stay in section 132 and turn over to the heading while I read what it says there. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Nauvoo, Illinois, recorded July 1843, relating to the new and everlasting covenant, including the eternity of the marriage covenant, as also plur plurality of, of wives. Although the date of this revelation is July 12, 1843, it is likely that Joseph Smith was receiving revelation on the principles recorded in this section over time, beginning as early as 1831, a year after the church was organized. It was while Joseph was translating the Old Testament that he asked the Lord about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their involvement with concubines. So let's turn then to verse 34 of section 132. This is where it begins to talk about plural marriage. Verse 34, God commanded Abraham. Now that stands by itself. God commanded Abraham. And Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. And why did she do it? because this was the law. In other words, obedience to the commandment. And from Hagar sprang many people. This, therefore, was fulfilling, among other things, the promises. Verse 36. 
Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac. Nevertheless, it was written, Thou shalt not kill. Abraham, however, did not refuse, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. In other words, he was accounted under God, unto God to be obedient, to obey the commandment, the kingdom of God or nothing. Now, I can't help here, and this is my own thinking, and I'll take responsibility for it, to compare Sarah with Emma. Both women were married to prophets. They both stood by their husbands as they watched them be refined and molded into powerful men of God. Sarah, at age 90, still could not have children, yet her husband had been promised posterity. Emma lost many children to death, one after the other. Do you think she ever questioned why? Both husbands were asked to do the impossible, Abraham to sacrifice his long-awaited son, and Hagar was Sarah's, oh, let's see, and Joseph to introduce plural marriage. Both wives stood by. Isn't it interesting that Hagar was Sarah's servant, and Fanny Alger was Joseph's first plural wife? And she was Joseph and Emma's household help. Both prophets did, as it says in verse 37 of 132, they did none other things than that which they were commanded. And both women are examples to us today when we are asked to do the impossible. If we look at verses 37 through 43, it makes reference to adultery. And it clarifies that when the Lord's people practice plural marriage because, because the Lord has commanded it, they are not guilty of the sin of adultery. So adultery is defined in verse 41. If a man receiveth a wife in the new and everlasting covenant, and if she be with another man, and I have not appointed unto her by the holy anointing, she had committed adultery and she be destroyed. Hold on to that word, destroyed, as we go to verse 54. And I command mine handmaid Emma Smith to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she will be destroyed saith the Lord, for I am the Lord thy God and will destroy her if she abide not my law. Now, I know what's in your heart right now. That's a stark word, and that is hard to read, destroyed. But I want to explain a little more about that word, destroy. It sounds extremely stark. David Ridges, in his book, said it means destroyed spiritually. The dictionary refers to destroy as to render ineffective or useless. The manual with which we're studying Foundations of the Restoration says, those who violate their sacred covenants will be separated from God and from his people. So I would like to add, separated from God, to render ineffective, perhaps by their own choice. 
and not God's. Verse 40 of section 132 identifies another reason for the practice of plural marriage. So if you turn to verse 40, And I, the Lord thy God, I am the Lord thy God, and I gave unto thee thy servant Joseph an appointment and restore all things. You see, plural marriage was a part of the restitution. It was part of the restoration, and plural marriage was part of the restoration of all things. So in plural marriage, women were free to choose their spouses. They were proposed to and asked to participate, but they had the choice whether or not to enter into plural marriage or marry at all. Some men entered plural marriage because they were asked to or called to, while others initiated the process, but all were required to obtain approval of church leaders. Now, the practice spread slowly at first. It was, it was not a time of transparency in the church, and probably a good thing. It was not really publicly talked about over the pulpit until 1852, and the saints were here in this valley. So by June of 1844, now think about it. This section 132 was 1843. But by 1844, approximately 29 men and 50 women had entered into plural marriage. There were more women than men among the saints and many widows and single mothers, as been taught to us today already, who benefited from the, this practice. And when the saints entered the valley in 1847, there were at least 196 men and 521 women had entered into plural marriage. Approximately one-third of all the saints participated in plural marriage, and two-thirds of those participating had only two wives, if that gives you a perspective. Now, we must be honest about plural marriage. It was difficult for all that were involved, and for Emma, it was excruciating. We can only have great respect for Emma Smith. She had her ups and downs. At one time, she approved four wives for Joseph. They all lived there in the home and helped her. One day, she would be both feet in, and another day, completely distraught with the idea. And we can understand. Unfortunately, a few unscrupulous men used rumors to seduce women to join in an unauthorized practice of plural marriage sometimes referred to as spiritual wifery. John C. Bennett, the mayor of Nauvoo, took advantage of this principle, and he was excommunicated. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, in her book, A Houseful of Females, said this, plural marriage empowered women. It added to the complexity and the adversity they experienced. It reinforced an already well-developed community of women to share work, to share children, and to share religious faith, to share care in childbirth and in illness. It strengthened bonds. She also went on to say, my study of this period doesn't turn me toward questions about the nature of God so much as it turns me toward deeply meaningful questions about how human beings manage to live together in the world 
and make reasonable lives out of inscrutable suffering? Those are such contemporary and profound questions. So let's discuss two questions today. What was, was plural marriage primarily a religious or a sexual principle? And how was plural marriage a trial of their faith? Brigham Young said this uh, in reference to a religious or sexual principle. God never introduced plural marriage with a view to please man and his carnal desires, nor to punish females for anything they had done, but he introduced it for the express purpose of raising up to his name a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. Eliza R. Snow was sealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. She recorded the following experience in which the prophet taught the principle of plural marriage to her brother, Lorenzo Snow. Listen and see if you can feel the prophet's anguish in what he said. The prophet Joseph unbosomed his heart to Lorenzo and described the trying mental ordeal he experienced in overcoming the repugnance of his feelings relative to the introduction or introduction of plural marriage. He knew the voice of God. He knew the commandment of the Almighty to him was to go forward, to set the example, and to establish celestial plural marriage. He knew that he had not only his own prejudices to combat, but those of the whole Christian world stared him in the face. But God, who is above all, had given the commandment, and he must be obeyed. Yet the prophet still hesitated and deferred from time to time until an angel of God stood by him with a drawn sword and told him that unless he moved forward and established plural marriage, his priesthood would be taken from him and he should be destroyed. Now, does Joseph sound like he based the principle of plural marriage on religious or sexual principles to you? All evidence suggests that he did it based on obedience rather than lust. Richard Bushman said, Joseph ordinarily followed the commandments as if disobedience put him at risk. But in the case of plural marriage, he held off for one or three years before marrying Fanny Alker. And then, after this one unsuccessful attempt, it did not work. She was 16 years old. He had permission of her parents. She had her permission, but it failed. So he waited another five years, and the delay showed an uncharacteristic reluctance on Joseph's part, a hard one for one who feared God. Joseph had to lead the way. He could not ask others to do something he, could not, he would not be willing to do. In the Gospel Topics, it quotes, many women were sealed to Joseph Smith. Richard Bushman in Roughstone Rolling said, historians debate, but the total figure of Joseph Smith's wives is most likely between 28 and 33. After the prophet's death, many women were sealed to him who had no mortal relationship with him. Whatever the exact number, now think about this, whatever the number, the marriages are numerous enough to indicate an impersonal bond. 
Joseph did not marry women to form a warm human companionship, but to create a network of related wives, children, kinsmen that would endure into the eternities." End of quote. Joseph had a great desire for unity among the saints. Now, it's interesting that although the Lord commanded the adoption of plural marriage, he did not give specific instructions for Joseph as to how to do it. That same principle applies to other prophets we read in the scriptures. Nephi did not know how to build the ship he was instructed to build. The brother of Jared did not know how to light the barges, and Lorenzo Snow did not know how to financially sustain the church. Yet, step by step, the inspiration came. George Q. Cannon gives us insight into this. The presidency of the church have to walk just as you walk. They have to take steps just as you take steps. They have to depend upon the revelation of God as they come to them. They cannot see the end from the beginning as the Lord does. All that we can do is to seek the mind and will of God. And when that comes to us, though it may come in contact with every feeling that we have previously entertained, we have no option but to take the step that God points out and to trust in him. End quote. Let me explain a little bit about ceilings here before we go farther. When ceilings were introduced to Joseph, it was kind of like when baptisms for the dead was introduced. The people picked up on the idea for baptisms for the dead. They ran out into the rivers and they started baptizing themselves for wives, women for men and men for women and it, it did not have structure or order. Now the same happened with ceilings. People were sealed, families were sealed together. Friends were sealed to each other. It did not have the order that the Lord wanted until step by step it became known to Joseph as to how those ceilings would work. Now, I quote this next section from the Gospel Topic essay. I have tried to word it in my own words, but you must hear it as it is written. And this is, this, this is the best way. During the era in which plural marriage was practiced, Latter-day Saints distinguished between sealing for time and eternity and sealings for eternity only. Sealings for time and eternity included commitments and relationships during this life, generally including the possibility of sexual relations. Eternity-only sealings indicated the relationships would happen in the next life alone. Some of the women who were sealed to Joseph later testified that their marriages were for time and eternity while others indicated that their relationships were for eternity alone. Many of those sealed to Joseph were between the ages of 20 and 40 years of age at the time of their sealing to him. The oldest, Fanny Young, Brigham Young's sister, was 56 years old. The youngest was Helen Marr Kimball, a daughter of Heber and Valate Kimball, who was sealed to Joseph several months before her 15th birthday. Now, marriage at such an age was legal in that era, and the relationship did not involve sexual relations. Helen, you need to know, became an articulate defender of plural marriage. 
Joseph was sealed to a number of women who were already married. When it was possible, he did this with the husband's approval. Neither these women nor Joseph explained much about these sealings, though several women have said they were for eternity alone. Now stick with me on this, because this, these, these things, these very things that I am saying are hard to hear. But there is light. There are several possible explanations for Joseph being sealed to married women. Number one, these sealings may have provided a way to create an eternal bond or link between Joseph's family and other families within the church, like I've explained about sealings. Today, that eternal bond is achieved through temple marriages of individuals who are sealed to their own birth families. In Nauvoo, most, if not all, of the first husbands seem to have continued living in the same household with their wives during Joseph's lifetime. And complaints about these sealings with Joseph Smith are virtually absent from the documentary record. You see, many of these husbands realized that they could not provide the eternal exaltation their wives desired or their wives were worthy of, so they accepted the principle for their wives. These uh, ceilings to married women also may be explained by Joseph's reluctance to enter plural marriage because of the sorrow it would bring to his wife, Emma. He may have believed and I think this is so interesting. He may have believed that sealings to married women would comply with the Lord's commandment without requiring him to have normal marriage relationships. So this could explain why, according to Lorenzo Snow, the angel reprimanded Joseph for having demurred on plural marriage even after he had entered into the practice. After this rebuke, According to this interpretation, Joseph returned primarily to ceilings with single women. Now another possibility is that in an era when lifespans were shorter than they are today, faithful women felt an urgency to be sealed to priesthood authority. Several of these women were married either to non-Mormons or former Mormons and more than one of the women later expressed unhappiness in her present marriage. These women may have believed a ceiling to Joseph Smith would be a great blessing that they might not otherwise receive in the next life. These women paid a price. The women who united with Joseph Smith in plural marriage risk their reputation and self-respect in being associated with the principal uh, Zina Huntington Jacobs said, I made a greater sacrifice than to give my life, for I never anticipated again to be looked upon as an honorable woman. Nevertheless, she wrote, I searched the scripture, and by humble prayer to my Heavenly Father, I obtained a testimony for myself. Not all had such experiences. Some Latter-day Saints rejected the principle of plural marriage and left the church, while others uh, declined to enter the practice but remained faithful. 
Nevertheless, for many women and men, initial uh, revulsion and anguish was followed by struggle, resolution, and ultimately light and peace. Sacred experiences enabled the saints to move forward. Now, if you'll listen to this, this is a little bit of light here. Parley P. Pratt said to Brigham Young, this is, this is the language was used in that day. I have in my own mind selected another assistant missionary to assist me in my mission for time and all eternity. It only requires your sanction, the lady's consent and the seal of God to complete the appointment. The candidate is sister, a sister from Manchester, England, therefore known as Sister Hill. What say ye? This is Parley P. Pratt's comment to Keziah Hill. I hope you will excuse the liberty I've taken in presenting the above to President Young. He gave his ready sanction to the selection, and now, he said, it remains to you to say whether you will undertake such a mission of your own will, free will and choice. Then Parley said, count well the cost. I can promise you nothing but poverty, hard work, and many burdens in this work, but which but few can bear. And be assured, your decision either way will neither lessen, never lessen our friendship. They were sealed six days later. Now I've asked two friends, Mary Durham and Laura Hansen, to come up and share a glimpse of their um, experience through their ancestors with plural marriage. So Mary and Laura, come on up, and, and we'll have Mary, you go first, and then Laura. Thank you. Good morning. Samuel Rose Parkinson was my fourth great-grandfather. He also was a founder of Franklin, Idaho. After being arrested two times, he was taken to Blackfoot, Idaho, and found guilty for polygamy, and was sentenced to six months in the penitentiary and $300 fine. I would like to quote from his history. Mr. Haley was the prison warden and was not a Mormon, which could have made, his, made prison life very miserable. But in Samuel's case, he extended to him every consideration. In the prison yard, just before he was released, the following conversation took place. Mr. Parkinson, which one of your wives are you going to live, live with when you leave here? You know, you can't live with all of them. Warden Haley, Samuel replied, I stay, I'll stay here as long as you say, but when you leave, I am going home to all of them. Then the warden asked, which one of them do you love the best? Samuel considered the question for a few moments. Then, very deliberately, in the dust of the prison yard, he drew a circle with the end of his cane. Stepping to the middle of the circle, he replied, Warden, you see me here in the center of the circle. Put my wives anywhere around it, and the one nearest to me, I love the best. At home during this time of his imprisonment, all but two of Anna Arabella's children, Charlotte and Esther, 
were married and had established homes of their own before Samuel's incarceration. However, in Charlotte's and Maria's families, there were 17 at home, all ranging from the age of two to 16. Both Maria and Charlotte were pregnant. Charlotte gave birth to her daughter, Nettie, the month that Samuel was released, the month before Samuel was released. Maria bore a son, Henry, in June, in the month following his release. It was difficult, a taxing period on all members of the families, but in faith and with loyalty and good humor, they sustained each other." End quote. This is from um, my aunt's um, personal history. And she was born in 1901. And um, so this is, she is a little girl. She's saying, I was born in the days of plural marriage. From the time my mother was a young girl, she wanted to live in, quote, the principal. As her mother and father had, and interestingly enough, Mary and I have not talked of this, but that mother was Mariah, we called her Smart Parkinson, and the father was Samuel Parkinson. <laughs> so my grandmother, Luella, is one of Mariah's daughters, and Samuel Rose's. So we're related, Mary. <laughs> Probably many of you are. <laughs> anyway, um, so her mother, Luella, always wanted to live the principal, as her mother and father had. So when the opportunity arose, she became the second wife of Matthias Foss Cowley. As a little girl, this is my aunt, I had the feeling there was only one principle of the gospel, and that was plural marriage. Certainly to us, it was the most important. I thought it the greatest privilege and felt sorry for my cousins who didn't have the principle, whose fathers held, had only one wife. Because of the problems associated with plural marriage, we often had mothers and their children living with us who were living in the underground. This expression always puzzled me a little because they were on top just as we were. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That is a coincidence. But from a child's perspective and from a husband's perspective, now plural marriage was a trial of faith. Jo or Brigham Young said, I envied the corpses that went down the street. It doesn't have to per participate in plural marriage, yet I did. And, uh, but plural marriage served as a refiner's fire. Now think about this. It served as refiner's fire in that it helped the saints overcome selfishness. Plural marriage amplifies this test. It draws out of females their weakness to be jealous and compare. And it draws out of males their weakness for passion and lack of control. It put both of those weaknesses together, and it was a refiner's fire. We do not understand all of God's purposes behind plural marriage. Perhaps it isn't meant for us to understand now. Perhaps it's like we read in 1 Nephi chapter 17, after you have arrived in the promised land, ye shall know that I am God. Maybe after we return back to our Heavenly Father, we will know why plural marriage was a part of our history.
But we do know that plural marriage produced seed and increased the numbers and strength of the membership in the church, that it served as a refiner's fire, that it did enhance uh, unity in the culture, it provided security, shelter, and future for widowed and the singled women. And we see the rewards of that sacrifice today. I want to share with you the story of Heber and Vallette. Elaine Lloyd isn't here today. Her husband um, is a great-grandson, I think, of Heber C. Kimball. Another story like we heard from Laura and Mary. It goes like this. When the prophet Joseph received the revelation concerning celestial marriage, he was very cautious as to whom he told. Before, before he told Heber C. Kimball, he decided to test him. The test was no less than a requirement that Heber surrender his beloved wife, Vallette, to Joseph in marriage. <clears throat> you have to know, Vallette, they said, was one of the most beautiful women in Nauvoo. <clears throat> this revelation nearly paralyzed Heber. He could scarcely believe his ears, yet he knew the integrity of Joseph too well to doubt him and recognize the divinity of his word. For three days, Heber fasted and prayed, and then, with a broken heart, he led his wife, his dear wife, to Joseph's house and presented her to the prophet. Joseph wept at this proof of Heber's devotion and joined the hands of the devoted pair. And by virtue of the sealing power and the authority of the holy priesthood made Heber and Vallette husband and wife for all eternity. This was the test for Heber. Vallette's test was to come. Heber, through the prophet Joseph Smith, was commanded to take a young widow and two small children as his wife without telling Vallette. This deception grieved Heber sorely. He was commanded three times before he yielded. Vallette noticed a change in his manner and appearance and inquired as to the cause. Heber tried to evade her questions. His looks became haggard and his body ill with mental strain. Finally, Vallette retired to her room and bowed down before the Lord, pouring out her heart to him. As she knelt, it became clear to her. Before her was illustrated the order of celestial marriage in all of its glory and beauty. I believe something we cannot even imagine. Together with the exaltation and honor it would bring to her if she would accept and stand in her place at her husband's side. She also saw the woman he was to take his wife. With a beaming countenance, she returned to her husband, saying, Heber, what you have kept from me, the Lord has shown to me. She told what she had seen and said she was satisfied and knew it was from God. She faithfully kept her covenant, and though her trials were many and often difficult to bear, she knew that Heber was being tried and her integrity was unflinching to, flinching to the end. She stood by Heber as he took many wives who always found in Vallette a faithful friend. 
Now the manifesto was declared in 1890. It was finally, and since 1862, laws came through the United States that prohibited plural marriage. But in 1890, the laws, the national laws, indicated that any religion would lose its property of any value over $50,000 if they practiced plural marriage. The Lord knew, and President Wilford, Wilford Woodruff knew, that that would mean we would lose ordinances and covenants, and the change was declared. The manifesto was given. The quote from the official declaration from President Wilford Woodruff said, the Lord showed me by vision and revelation exactly what would take place if we did not stop this practice. All ordinances would be stopped, confusion would reign, and men would be made prisoners. And then he said, I lay this question before the Latter-day Saints. I think that is beautiful. It was unified. It was, you see the dilemma, we see the dilemma. Now let's work together to make it work and fit within these laws. And again, it was as difficult to end as it was to start. I conclude with this. Plural marriage happened in the past, and it is not authorized to be practiced in the church today. We cannot let it be a deal breaker in terms of being a disciple of Christ. Plural marriage is a very small part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It happened, and if it is uncomfortable, and an uncomfortable part of our history for you to accept and understand, don't get weighed down by it. You can come to know and understand for yourself. Just like Valate Kimball, you can come to better understand this principle. Each one of us is entitled to the personal revelation about the questions we carry, and we must seek with real intent to find those answers. If we choose, we can take the issue at hand, any issue, whether it be plural marriage or anything else, those things that we do not understand, and we can take them down off the shelf, we can examine them, and if we can't resolve them, we can wait for the future resolution. There are some things that we are not meant to understand while we live on this earth. Mormon said, in the words of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 7, And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. Personally, that scripture brings great peace to my mind. I know the Lord thrives on loving relationships. If we see plural marriage through the Lord's perspective, we see his purpose is to develop mankind. And if plural marriage did one thing, it developed mankind. Think about, not in every case, but in many cases, the unity of the sisters, the love they had for each other, 
and for their Heavenly Father because it took that kind of strength to, to live that principle. Think about the children who witnessed the faith of their parents and hence the children after that. Think about the strength that it gave them to follow the principles of not only the word of God, but the living prophet of that day. That's when I see the strength that came from the sacrifices these saints, saints made. I am not embarrassed that this is a part of our church history. I think if only, if only I could be so courageous. I gratefully acknowledge the sacrifice that was made by so many. You see, sisters, we cannot separate God from his commandments. And he said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Isn't it all based on love, a spiritual courage to love? It truly is the kingdom of God or nothing. I would pray that as you leave today, you'll have a greater desire to seek, to understand, to confirm, and to defend what we know as sisters in this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The women of this church have been strong since the very beginning. We look to them to gather our strength, and our daughters will have that very same strength within their bones as they see it in our eyes and in our hearts. I love our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and I recognize their hand in all commandments that come to us through our living prophets and those in the past. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs>